Hi and welcome to Malicious Life in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ran Levy. In 1989, the wankworm devastated NASA's Johnson Space Center in the days surrounding a shuttle launch. I remarked in our episodes covering that story how remarkable it was that two teenagers could have conceivably disrupted the world's most technically sophisticated apparatus from their bedrooms in Australia. But should I have been all that surprised? NASA hacking stories are not so rare as we might like to think. I uh, now recognize our next witness, Mr. Martin, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Brown, Ranking Member Tonko. On February 29th, 2012, Paul Martin, NASA Inspector General, testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Subcommittee on Investigations and Oversight. The subject of the hearing was a statement he authored about the state of NASA cybersecurity. If you want to check out a video of Martin's opening statement, you can find it on YouTube. As of the date of this recording, it's got just over 35 views, most of which can probably be attributed to our podcast team. But I'm not just poking fun here, although maybe I am a little. The fact is that while Paul Martin's testimony made some news in the cybersecurity community back in 2012, the level of attention it received was hardly fitting with the content of its message, because what he said was really quite remarkable. In 2010 and 2011, NASA reported 5,408 computer security incidents that resulted in the installation of malicious software on or unauthorized access to its systems. These incidents range from individuals testing their hacking skills to well-organized criminal enterprises seeking to exploit NASA's systems for profit to intrusions that may have been sponsored by foreign intelligence services. Two years, 5,408 malicious attacks. That averages to seven and a half hacks per day. You would think, under such conditions, Paul Martin would be speaking less like this and more like this. So NASA has weathered tens of thousands of malicious attacks since the wankworm of 1989. Strangely enough, though, if you were to type NASA hacker into Google, it would return just one man's name. Among thousands upon thousands of hackers, one has stood out from the rest. He went by the name Solo, and his story is the subject of today's episode of Malicious Life. Hacker Voice Radio, a UK broadcast, interviewed Solo on March 19th, 2007. So I uh, just want to say, how have you been so far? I mean, how are you, basically? Um, pretty low. Yeah. Um, really pissed off not being able to work. Yeah. Five years earlier, from August 2001 to October 2002, Solo was obsessively poking around in U.S. government computer systems, moving between access points and databases, combing over whatever documents, images, and other data he could find. One prosecutor would later claim that his actions constituted, quote, the biggest military computer hack of all time, 
end quote. Using a simple dial-up modem, Solo began by scanning for open ports, such as 139, the port used to access Windows computers. Any NASA admins that left port 139 unprotected potentially allowed Solo the opportunity to log in just the same as they could. As he explains it in an interview with the BBC, quote, the first scan would only identify Windows machines. After that, you run a secondary scan saying, okay, this is a Windows machine, but can I actually talk to it across the port? A few would go, and a few would still be left open. Then after that, there's a third stage where you say, okay, I can talk to them. Is there a blank password? Then you do your harvesting and you end up with a big list of administrator level powerful accounts, end quote. Here, once again, NASA administrators failed to change their default passwords. Just as it was for the wankworm authors, Solo used this oversight to gain control over some of the network's most high-level accounts. Finally, onto the unsecured computers he found, Solo uploaded Remotely Anywhere, a remote access tool. Once inside, Solo could jump from computer to computer, center to center, with little resistance and few firewalls. He described traversing through NASA's networks as being like, quote, walking into another room. It's hardly surprising, then, that other malicious actors were also navigating NASA's networks at the same time he was. Each time he accessed the network, he could see, through the software he was using, other users with IP addresses located around the world, from China to the Netherlands. Definitely not NASA personnel. For a while, he diligently covered his tracks. Choosing to use remotely anywhere as a means of access was a sneaky move, because it's a software tool not only used by hackers, but by business people doing work across distances. Ordinary employees can use remotely anywhere to, say, access their work computers from home. Because of its legitimate uses, Solo was able to install the program onto NASA's computers without any red flags being raised by any antivirus programs. By controlling a computer from a remote access point, Solo knew that everything he was doing would show up on a screen somewhere in the United States. If he dragged his mouse, that mouse would move on the target's screen. If he clicked on a folder, it opened on his screen and the host machine's screen. This meant, obviously, that he couldn't work during normal 9-5 to hours in the US. He couldn't do anything during any time of day when a host machine's screen might be spotted. Even a janitor who walked by, sweeping the floors, posed a threat. Imagine being that janitor, working late at night in a dark open office, seeing a computer going about its business with nobody in the chair controlling it. Presumably, somebody would hear about it imminently. Knowing this, Solo timed his access to when he was least likely to be spotted. After a while, though, with no indication that he'd ever get caught, he grew in confidence and started making more noise by posting hostile messages to his victim computers. Your security system is crap, he wrote on a US Army computer towards the end of 2001. I am solo, 
I will continue to disrupt at the highest levels. While U.S. government investigators poured over data in an attempt to find who they believe to be one of the most dangerous cyber terrorists in the nation's history, a 36-year-old former hairdresser was living in his girlfriend's aunt's house in North London. Gary McKinnon, codenamed Solo, was six years old when he and his mother moved from Scotland to England, and he was 14 when he got his first Atari 400 computer. His interest in it quickly grew into a fixation. Quote, from about 14 to 17, I was completely blinkered, he later recalled, learning programming, writing my own games. I was into graphics and artificial intelligence, end quote. Gary learned how to write in BASIC, then the base-level language of computer code. In 1983, he saw the movie War Games, where a young Matthew Broderick hacks into the Pentagon. In 1985, he read The Hacker's Handbook. And so, his path was born. Gary left school at 17 and became a hairdresser. He failed to complete his university degree due to struggles with advanced mathematics, but soon managed to find work in IT services. From 1994 to 2000, he found sporadic work in tech support for an ISP provider, a solicitations company, a telecommunications provider, and J.P. Morgan. By all accounts, he was living a rather ordinary life in North London. But to the U.S. government, he was an unknown entity, attacking U.S. military and defense systems directly after the terrorist attack of 9-11. For all they knew, he could have been Al-Qaeda. Gary McKinnon was ultimately arrested by the U.K.'s National High Tech Crime Unit in the morning of March 19, 2002. They'd found him in part based on evidence of his IP and his girlfriend's email address in the server logs of Binary Research, the distributor of Remotely Anywhere. It turns out that he'd used his girlfriend's email to sign up for a trial version of the program before obtaining a crack. Classic mistake. When the police barged in at 8.30 in the morning, Gary was fast asleep as usual after a long night of hacking. They confiscated seven computers, including those owned by him and his girlfriend. At the police station, he admitted to hacking into U.S. government machines and denied being a member of Al-Qaeda. Gary wasn't immediately charged with anything, but he could have faced anywhere between six months and four years in a U.K. prison. The prospect must not have been appealing, and now, free on bail, he was to be temporarily barred from using any computer connected to the internet and required to sign in with his local police station every evening. Things were only to get much worse from here. Later the same year, U.S. prosecutors charged Gary McKinnon with crimes that could have seen him in an American jail for as many as 70 years. A life sentence. In 2005, the U.S. submitted a request that Gary be sent from the U.K. to face U.S. prosecution. The motion was made on the grounds of a treaty signed by the two nations in 2003 to allow for more effective prosecution of suspected terrorists. But was Gary a terrorist? Or did he have some other reason for doing what he did? 
Malicious Life is sponsored by Cyber Reason, a cybersecurity company. If you're into cybersecurity, and since you're listening to our show, there's a good chance you are, I don't think I need to tell you about the problem of logs. We've all had that experience. Something's off in the network. Perhaps something malicious is going on. So you grab the logs and start browsing around for signs of foul play. But even a one megabyte log file is roughly 500 pages of text or a good-sized book. It's the classic needle in the haystack problem. What you need is a system that can not only detect threats in the network, but also screen false positives and show you the important stuff. In other words, what you need is a system that gives you a story. Jeffrey Wright, a cybersecurity manager at RTI Surgical, knows exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I'm Jeff Wright. I'm at RTI Surgical. We are a medical device company. We actually manufacture medical devices. I am the primary person responsible for security at RTI. I've been in the game since the 90s, since dial-up modems. It's great to be technical and it's great to be log-driven. But when you start trying to talk to someone that doesn't understand security at all, all they really want is a story. They, you know, it's all about visual aids. But we didn't have anything that really was piping on the whole concept of ransomware, ransomware, ransomware. And I felt that CyberReason did that for me. It added a layer of security that we just didn't have. It added that visibility to the endpoints when they're not in the office, which was a big deal for me. I was very impressed with not only the product, but the biggest thing for me was, as someone who likes the red team, I was like, who better to protect the environment? Someone actually has a history on attacking. Now we have that visibility into the endpoints. So not only do we know that, oh, I have a problem, but now CyberReason allows us to see the how, the why, and the when. CyberReason's deep hunting engine gives you deep visibility into endpoints. It automatically extracts statistical and behavioral analytics at a rate of 8 million queries per second on the data collected. CyberReason's technology can surface malicious operations without you writing a single rule. No more alert fatigue, no more huge log files. Learn more at CyberReason.com. Yeah, this is from, uh, from Demonics, um, another regular listener and guy from the forums. Um, how, what was the name, sorry? Uh, Demonics. Okay, yeah. Um, how did you get interested in UFOs, and have you ever seen one? Um, I got interested in them when I saw one, which I suppose answered them, them both. <laughs> um, it was a usual figure, a very different light in the sky. Majestic 12 is a popular conspiracy theory a supposed organization formed by President Harry Truman in 1947, comprising scientists and leaders in the government and military who secretively conduct research on uncovered UFOs. Gary McKinnon was a member of the British UFO Research Association. He has told reporters of his belief that Majestic 12 has studied alien spacecraft and reverse-engineered anti-gravity propulsion systems that are being hidden from public knowledge. Plenty of people believe in aliens, UFOs, and shadow government operations. Frankly, as far as conspiracy theories go, Majestic 12 is relatively harmless. You might call it crazy. I would, too. But what's crazier than thinking aliens have visited the Earth is actually going out and breaking into U.S. government databases all on your own to uncover the evidence. 
Gary did it with some success for over 13 months from February 2001 to March 2002. For him, hacking was simply a means to a greater end. As he came across new computers and new databases, he combed over the files he found for any trace of evidence to UFO cover-ups. He was so successful, in fact, that it became near impossible for him to quit. He went unshaven for long stretches of time, ignoring friends and family, rarely leaving the house. I'd stopped washing at one point, he told a reporter for the BBC. I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't eating properly. I was sitting around the house in my dressing gown, doing this all night. Depression set in. He stopped showing up to work. His relationship with his girlfriend began to deteriorate, and so she dumped him even as he continued to live with her at her aunt's home in North London. I think I almost wanted to be caught, he'd later recall, because it was ruining me. I had this classic thing of wanting to be caught so there would be an end to it. This, it would seem, was America's cyber terrorist. In most respects, Gary McKinnon was a much less interesting man than he's been made out to be. Far from being an Al-Qaeda operative, he was just a person who took his interests way too far. His was a script kitty level hack. Actually, most of what he did was achieved through publicly available tools tied together by a program he wrote which allowed him to quickly, effectively leverage that information. He exploited known Windows vulnerabilities on computers without adequate password or firewall protections. The ease with which he did what he did would actually hurt him later on following his arrest. You've heard the stories before of hackers converted to the side of law enforcement following their arrests. Gary had no power to leverage in his plea deal because his technical skill was so ordinary before you actually go in, is where I'm parked. And the machine where I discovered uh, the picture was actually in Building 8 of Johnson Space Center, mm -hmm. which is where a disclosure project witnessed the uh, name of Donna Hare, who was a NASA photographic scientist who had secret clearance, said that in Building 8 of Johnson Space Center, they have a, a special subset where they airbrushed out UFO images okay. on a regular basis. And so then to find those files, in Building 8 of Johnson Space Center is, uh, you know, that really... Pretty convincing. <clears throat> According okay, to his um, own telling, Gary had found a folder on a Johnson uh, Space Center RLC, computer titled uh, from, uh, Unfiltered. Uh, Contained within was a thumbnail of a strange satellite image depicting what looked to be some kind of spacecraft. It was cigar-shaped with a clear dome on top. Alien or government-made? This had to be a UFO. As the high-resolution image slowly downloaded to his computer, though, somebody on the other end took control. And cut you off. What was going through your mind then? Did you think, oh, this is it now, I'm done? Well, I knew I'd been caught because I made took control of the mouse. Yeah. And then, yeah, they right-click on the LAN icon and disconnected. Um... It was, yeah, it was horrible because it was just, it was just after, what well, was during downloading the first picture of sounds where Donna Hare said it would be, you know, in, in the folders that were called raw and processed or whatever. Mm -hmm. so it was a real um, weird moment, you know, complete elation and then a complete um, 
completely horrified. <laughs> a US government employee took control of Gary's mouse and before he could do anything about it, clicked to sever his connection. He left without his photo, but unswayed. Claiming that he found his first hard piece of evidence at the very moment he was first kicked off a U.S. government computer after a whole year with no issue is not believable to us. Even in a universe where they did exist, it's hard to imagine that classified images depicting UFOs would sit on government computers connected to the open internet. The state has internal offline networks for that level of sensitive information. It's more likely that Gary either happened upon a honeypot, which would explain the highly coincidental timing of being shut out of the network at the exact moment he'd been building up to for a whole year, or that he simply misinterpreted a tiny thumbnail or grainy image slowly coming through his 56k-bit dial-up connection. It is quite possible, no matter the legitimacy of his claim, that he himself believes it to be true. So, a suspected terrorist? It seems a bit harsh. Perhaps Gary was being made an example of. Perhaps he was a victim of his timing, having breached sensitive U.S. government and military systems in and around the time of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Many saw his treatment as unjustified. Those who knew the history of NASA cybersecurity knew that Gary McKinnon was not only not a dangerous criminal, he was not even particularly unique. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> security is so lax. You yeah. Know. Well, that's right. I think you become lax yourself, you know, traditionally in myself. Mm. I think the point has has to be really made that um, you you weren't the only person in there. Um, oh, crikey, and, and and um, you didn't necessarily know the other people that were in in the systems, but f- no. for for a very very good um, you know chance, there's probably going to be about four or five other people who were doing the same thing as you. It was just by some means that you were actually traced back. More than anything else, his mental condition was cited as a reason for leniency. It began when a woman saw Gary on TV and suggested he seek a mental health diagnosis. He agreed to be evaluated by Simon Barone Cohen, director of the Autism Research Center at the University of Cambridge. After a three hours long examination, Gary was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Barone Cohen told reporters, quote, He has got the classic patterns of Asperger's. McKinnon has a very narrow attention span and got totally obsessed searching for information about UFOs. The other feature that was pretty classic was his social naivete, not thinking about how he might be perceived by others, end quote. The news came as a surprise to his mother, who hadn't before understood what Asperger's actually is, but you would hardly feel the same if you'd known the man yourself. Gary was at once a highly intelligent child, interested in cosmology from a very young age, constantly reading, self-taught in Beethoven and Beatles piano songs as a preteen, and troubled in ways that made it difficult to associate with others. He'd shout uncontrollably if his mother brought him on a bus. 
By age 10, he developed a fear of the outdoors and refused to play with other children. As all the other kids socialized and came to know the rules governing society, Gary locked himself indoors, developing obsessions with all things aliens and computers. You can see, then, how Gary became the person he did. His fear of public transport translated into fainting spells any time he'd ride the London Tube as an adult. This, in turn, affected his job prospects. He had friends, but always felt most comfortable on his own. Long stretches of time spent in front of a screen, away from civilization, was his norm. Debate swelled over whether Asperger's should factor into sentencing. It's a difficult question. On one hand, because of the press attention it received, Gary's case had the potential to set a precedent for future cybercrime cases to come. U.S. officials were wont to make an example of him, make an exception on those grounds, and suddenly lawyers, until the end of time, have a new insanity defense. On top of those more logical considerations, the Americans had reason to be angry. Gary McKinnon had managed to breach not just NASA, but nearly a hundred computers from the U.S. Army, Air Force, and Department of Defense. He stole around 950 passwords, thrashed around 1,300 user accounts. He deleted files at a naval's weapon station and the U.S. air station database, which had the effect of temporarily crippling the latter network. He did down the entire digital apparatus of the U.S. Army at Washington, D.C., 2,000 computers in all, for a full three days. All this being said, you have to feel empathy for the guy. Even as a teenager, computers couldn't be just a fun hobby for Gary. They were a pull, an insatiable obsession. He may have been a nuisance to the U.S. government, but he wasn't after money power or laughs. By all accounts, he wasn't enjoying the process at all. He was stuck. A groundswell of support formed around Gary during his time awaiting trial. Free Gary t-shirts were printed. His mother wrote a book and ran for local office. David Gilmore, guitarist for Pink Floyd, collaborated with lead singers of the Boomtown Rats and the Pretenders for a cover of Graham Nash's Chicago in support of and featuring Gary McKinnon. The harsh U.S. justice system became an easy enemy, and Brits at large rallied together in a you-can't-tell-us-what-to-do kind of way. The tension grew greater and greater until it reached the highest rungs of pop culture and politics. Um, I think we have a question from Tom Bradbury. At a White House press conference in 2010, a UK reporter asks a question that seems to make the whole room grow awkward. Mr. President, Tom Bradbury, ITV News. Quite a lot of people in the UK feel that your determination as a country to continue to push for the extradition of um, computer hacker and Asperger sufferer Gary McKinnon is disproportionate and somewhat harsh. Do you think it is time now to consider some leniency in this case? And Prime Minister, you've expressed very strong views on this matter, suggesting that Mr. McKinnon shouldn't be extradited. Your Deputy Prime Minister has expressed even stronger views. Did you discuss that with the President today? And if not, would now be a 
Good moment to share your views with us once again. It's a thorny issue. Both President Obama and David Cameron deflect. Uh, please, go ahead. Um, it is something that we, we discussed in our, our meeting. Um, I mean, clearly there's a discussion going on between um, the British and the Americans about this, um, and I don't want to prejudice those discussions. We completely understand that um, Gary McKinnon stands accused of uh, a very important and significant crime in terms of uh, hacking into vital databases, and nobody denies that that is uh, an important crime that has to be considered. But I have had conversations with the U.S. ambassador, as well as raising it today with, uh, with the president, about this issue, and, and I hope a way through can be, can be found. One of the things that David and I discussed was the increasing challenge that we're going to face uh, as a consequence of the Internet and the need for us to cooperate extensively on issues of cybersecurity. It would be a long 2000s for Gary McKinnon as he fought to stay in Britain and as his likelihood of achieving it so swayed back and forth. At his first hearing in April 2006, a note from the U.S. Embassy in London was submitted to evidence stating that Gary wouldn't be tried under the same conditions as dangerous terrorists. But the note was unsigned. Was it binding? Finally, in October 2012, after a decade-long battle, his case came to a close. The American extradition request to the UK that Gary McKinnon stand trial for crimes punishable by decades in prison was formally blocked. He was informed that he would face no criminal charges in the UK and could freely return to his normal life. Gary evaded being sent to an American jail, but reading about his story and listening to his media interviews, I have a feeling he nevertheless suffered quite a lot for what he did. Keep in mind during all this, as depressed as you or I might be in the face of many decades in jail, the feeling must have been much worse for Gary a man who believed the U.S. government was the kind of organization to engage in elaborate and corrupt cover-ups. It's hard to imagine how terrified he felt during all those years. In a 2009 press conference, a full seven years after his arrest, he talked of being quote-unquote extremely stressed. Quote, I am very controlled, which is probably not a good thing, but inside, the fires of hell are burning. It's not a good place to be." End quote. Gary was with his mother when the news of his formal release came. Quote, we hugged and he cried, she said. He felt as if he were dead. He had no job, he had no children. He felt he was useless. He lost 10 years of his life. That's it for this episode. Stay with us for the last segment of our show, Malware Exploder. CyberReason's researchers will tell us about interesting malware they've analyzed recently. 
Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our previous episodes with full transcripts. You can find me on Twitter at atranlevy and follow at maliciouslife for updates on new episodes as they air. Malicious Life is also on CastBox, the most advanced and feature-rich podcast listening app. Drop me a comment on CastBox's Malicious Life page. Ideas for new episodes are always welcome. CastBox is available on all platforms, including Android, iOS, CarPlay, and Android Auto. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. And now, Malware Exploder. Enjoy. Welcome to the segment of our podcast, which I like to call Malware Exploder. In each episode, we talk to researchers from CyberReason and dive headfirst into the interesting and noteworthy malware discovered by the teams. This time, we're talking about the Remnant Banking Trojan. Here with me in the studio is Lior Rochberger. Hi, Lior. Hi. Uh, you're a threat hunter at the global hunting team at CyberReason. Thank you for joining me. And uh, let's talk about Remnant. Remnant is not a new Trojan. In fact, it's been around since 2010 and at its peak infected some 3 million PCs. So let's get to know it better. What can Remnant do? Ramnit is a banking Trojan. It's designed to steal uh, sensitive information and banking information. So Ramnit can perform an in-the-middle attack to steal sensitive uh, files, uh, to steal credentials, to steal cookies, and then uh, to send it to the CNC. So Ramnit, uh, what it does, it uh, usually injects its malicious DLL into another legitimate process to evade detection. Uh, and it also uses DGA, Domain Generation Algorithm, to perform connection to the CNC. Uh, Ramnit can uh, perform screen capture and use as a, bet- as a botnet. And it's mostly towards banking customers or banking organizations, you think? Uh, no, it's uh, it just designed to steal banking and sensitive information. It can uh, target users and even uh, companies. So it's jack of all trades in that regard. Yes. Okay, so uh, recently you at the CyberReason's global hunting team encountered uh, what is probably a new variant of the malware. So tell us about uh, the actual discovery of this variant. Okay, so the discovery was uh, in the middle of a demonstration that we did uh, to a customer. So uh, we showed them how we perform hunt on the environment. And uh, we started with the Lolbin's uh, scenario, which uh, is abused of uh, Bitsadmin, which is a legitimate tool um, performing uh, task uh, management. And we'll, and we'll dive deeper into Lolbin's in a second, yes. yes. And um, then we saw the abuse of bits admin uh, on their environment, and we started to uh, investigate what happened there, and we saw you the You mean in attack. real time, during yes. the demonstration to the client? Yes. <laughs> Which is, was probably a big surprise for the client, I'm guessing. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> and once you disco- the, discovered the actual attack, what happened then uh, inside the, the, the premises of the client? Did they actually use the, the product to actually eliminate the attack? So our product is an EDR. It shows you what um, happened and give you like a full picture of what happened. And then you need to respond and uh, perform actions in order to um, prevent this attack and to block it. So what we saw, it's the, the full attack chain and we, prevent, we, and we provided investigation and then the customers and us um, basically prevented it together. So let's dive a bit deeper into the lulbins. Uh, and lulbins is short for living off the land bind binaries. 
Let's talk about this concept first and foremost. What, what does it mean when we're saying living off the land in, in terms of cybersecurity? Uh, so living off the land is a technique that basically malware can use legitimate binaries like PowerShell, BitsAdmin, Certutil, and so on to perform their, their malicious activities. They can abuse these uh, binaries um, and then the, the investigator or the analyst will have much harder time to detect it because they first see something that looks benign. And then if you dive into it, you can see that it used to either communicate with the CNC, execute another process, uh, perform, uh, even like Satutil did in this case, to decode another file. So uh, they have various, various of files that can abuse, and uh, it's very hard to detect that. If we look at malwares in general, they usually use built-in programs like you know, Word files, uh, macro capabilities of Word Office, etc. So what, what, what's the difference in, in using different binaries? What other capabilities are uh, gained when using CERT utils on, or other binaries in the system? So I think that the more files that uh, we have on the operation system, most of them are unfamiliar to most uh, threat uh, hunter or even analyst. And we as an analyst, we don't know what to expect from these files. So if we see, for example, a weird command line, which uh, beats admin with a URL, we don't really know what it means. But if we see um, WinWord, which is the, the word uh, process, spawn shell, we can assume that it's macro. So it's like something new but it's based on the same technique. Mm, interesting. So you're saying if, he's use, if the malware author uses WinWord in a specific way, it's familiar. We know yes. that's not the usual way you use, we use WinWord, for example. But if you're using CertUtils or some other binary and it's not that familiar and the uses is not straightforward, it's harder to detect. So that's a plus uh, if you're looking at it from, from the malware author side. What's the minuses? What's the disadvantages of using those binaries built in into the system? I think, for example, PowerShell, because um, security analysts know, they know the strength of PowerShell, so more and more companies start to monitor this process and to see if we can get any malicious behavior that's not supposed to happen. So I think that um, from our side, which is the defensive, uh, defensive side, we always start, we start to... Um, pay attention to these processes uh, more and more. So I think that for now it's, it's a bit advantage for the, for the attackers, but soon people will understand that uh, the use of lolbins is very common and uh, we'll start to investigate and to um, monitor this process. Uh, Leo, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh my God. CK Music. 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 Music.